Tuesday Night Mystery Club. Hello and welcome to the Tuesday Night Mystery Club. I'm your host, Caitlin McCluskey, and today we are joined with one of my good friends, Shelly, who has gotten a lot of um, climbing accidents or uh, injuries. <laughs> I mean, yeah, that's fair. Hello. <laughs> she also climbed a lot, I think is the, the main point of that. Hi, Shelly. <laughs> Only because I keep injuring myself, otherwise I wouldn't have to keep climbing. <laughs> Hello, how are you? I'm well. I'm very excited for this episode. Mm-hmm. We're doing another Agatha Christie, as you know, and it's called The Pale Horse. Interesting. Okay. Which is, it's, I didn't look this up beforehand, I really should have, but it's something to do with the Bible and I think the devil um, and death. Oh no. Do I need to know stuff about the Bible? I, no, not at all. I don't know anything. But I'm going to look it up. And I looked and behold a pale horse and his name that sat on him was death and hell followed with him. Dark. Okay. Yeah. Are you uh, ready to get started? I am. I already tried copying down that verse and I failed miserably. Okay. Don't worry. It's it's not that important. It's just <laughs> okay. that's where the title came from. Oh, okay. So we start the book. There's this is like not a Hercule Poirot. It's not a Miss Marple. It's a like just standalone book, I guess is what you'd call it. And so um, we're meeting in the first chapter this guy named Mark Easterbrook, and he's going to be kind of um, the book's going to be a little bit from his point of view. So we got parts like chapters that are Mark Easterbrook's point of view, and then there's some chapters that are kind of just a third person point of view. Okay. So we're starting with him, and he is a guy who like is. I think he's like, maybe not a professor, but he's like some guy that like is part of like the university community and does a lot of studying. And so we are introduced to him while he's working on a history book about mogul architecture, which I don't know what it is. I didn't look it up. I didn't care enough. It's not going to be important, but that's what he's doing. Okay. (laughs) Mogul architecture. Weird, but okay. Yes. So he had just moved to Chelsea, which was like the, I think the hip part of London maybe, or hip part of England. I think it's London. Mm-hmm. It's in London, yeah. Okay, so he had just moved to Chelsea, which at the time, this book was written in 1961. And so it is like one of her later books, but it's like, um, they're talking about how all the girls like wear pullovers and skirts and they're always sweaty and they're so like, that's what they think hip is and they all look slouchy. I don't know. This is an old woman's perspective, I guess. <laughs> okay, yeah. Actually, I don't know how old Agatha Christie was at this time. I feel like that's still the style now. Like, I would totally wear, a, what is it, jumper? And yeah. A skirt. <laughs> no, exactly. I basically picture all our friends looking cute, and that's yeah. what they're describing. <laughs> Especially the boys. Yeah. <laughs> so this guy, Mark Easterbrook, he's older, so he kind of, he's looking at, like, he's living in uh, Chelsea. He's been living there for three months because I guess he, Chelsea has mogul architecture, and so he's gone <laughs> there to study it. But he's like an old, not an old guy, but maybe he's 30 or something and all the people living there are 20. So he's like, not old. I know. (laughs) (laughs) So he's been sitting in this espresso bar that he's gone in for dinner, which is, I think that's all the rage is like drinking coffee at night or espresso. Again, I didn't live in 1960. I don't know. But that's what people do is you go hang out in an espresso bar. I feel like that's just asking for insomnia. It's, but it's, all right, is the sixties yeah. when everyone did drugs. Like, is this is does this just play into it? <laughs> Maybe, yeah. I mean, we are drinking espresso martinis at night, so there you go. So maybe that's what this was. 
Um, and then also to like describe what's going on, he's been offered a banana and bacon sandwich. And that's like the hip thing to eat in Chelsea. So he accepts, but he's kind of like, okay, that's weird. Which I'm thinking, okay, that's weird. Wait, is the banana in the sandwich with the bacon? Yeah, it's cut up oh. banana and bacon in a sandwich. Ew. I, well, I hate <laughs> banana, so it sounds know. terrible to me. But I'm sure some people that sounds great. I like banana and it still sounds terrible. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so Mark Easterbrook is sitting in the coffee bar when suddenly a fight breaks out between two young girls in the cafe that were sitting kind of close to him. And they start screaming at each other about one at like one girl is screaming, you stole my boyfriend and the other girl, whatever is like fighting back. And they're kind of grabbing at each other. It's a blonde girl and a redhead girl. And the blonde girl pulls out the red haired girl's hair. And um, at this point, like a police officer kind of comes in and like breaks up the fight. And the redhead girl like goes, it didn't even hurt. And Mark asks the bartender or like the, the coffee bar guy, whatever, at the counter afterwards, what had happened. And the bartender goes, oh, that redhead, her name's Tommy Tuckerton. She's a tough girl. Got lots of money. All right. Tommy Tuckerton. Yes. And so Mark kind of just, he kind of goes like, that's crazy that she could just sustain that hair being pulled out. But, you know, it's just two young girls. So leaves, whatever, goes on his way. About a week later, he's reading the paper, and in the death section, he sees Tommy's name, Tommy Tuckerton, in the obituaries. And so he's like, oh, that's that's sad, because, you know, it's this young girl. Apparently, her dad had recently died, and that's where she got all her money from, so, you know, got her life ahead of her. Um, And then the same day, he kind of says he doesn't feel like working, so he had a letter from his cousin Rhoda, who was asking him to call on, like, a favor, And so this leads him to call up um, this woman, Mrs. Ariadne Oliver. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that name right, but she's a, so this is a recurring character in Agatha Christie books. Ariadne Oliver is a famous detective author who writes murder mysteries like Agatha Christie likes, writes murder mysteries. So it kind of feels like it's a character based off of Agatha Christie herself. Yeah, like she's writing herself in. Nice. (laughs) Yeah, kind of. And it's it's funny because she'll always, uh, uh, Mrs. Oliver that's how I'm going to call her. She'll talk about how difficult it is to write a murder mystery where there are five potential suspects and you have to make the reader suspect all five of them well, but it could only be one. And so she's talking about those kind of difficulties. And it is funny because I'm sure Agatha Christie was just feeling that herself. Yeah. <laughs> that's cute. And basically she had he had gone to Mrs. Oliver's house to ask if Mrs. Oliver would do a favor for his cousin Rhoda. She was doing like a church fet. It was like a like to raise money for some project in the town and was wanting Mrs. Oliver to sign books at the FET to, as part of like the fundraiser. Okay. And Mrs. Oliver is in, she's in one of these flurried states about go. She's, she's in the middle of writing a book and she's kind of freaking out about it. And so she kind of just tells Mark that she'll think about it and like, she's not sure. And then he leaves. (laughs) Okay. Before he leaves, they're talking about, um, he's kind of, because he's just read this thing about Tommy Tuckerton in the paper, he's telling her about how crazy it was that uh, her, like this girl had gotten her hair pulled out. And so Mrs. Oliver's thinking about when she was a kid and she had had like some illness or taken some medication where like her hair started to fall out. And she's thinking about um, one of her friends, Mrs. I think Della Fontaine, how her hair was, she was, she was in a nursing home and her hair was falling out and how sad it is because when you're older your hair doesn't really grow back but when you're younger it's not a problem. De La Fontaine, does this person ever come back? 
Or is it just like reminiscing on a story? I think so. I hope I got okay. the right name. I didn't write it down. That's fine. Yeah, Delafontaine. Okay. So then this has only jumped to like the third person narrative. So we're not, it's next chapter. It's not Mark Easterbrook's perspective. And it's this guy, Father Gorman, who's a, it's he's a Catholic parishioner. No, that's wrong. He's a Catholic, whatever. He's the, is it a priest? Is it a priest when it's Catholic? You're asking the wrong person here. <laughs> whatever, I don't know. It's whatever, the, the head of the church, I think it's Preacher. reverend. I think it's reverend. reverend. Okay. <laughs> yeah, let's Whatever. go with Catholic. That. We'll go with it. So Father Garman is Gorman is being called to a dying woman's side, and that's that makes sense with the Catholic religion because it's all about like confessing your sins before you die. Mm, right. Um, and so he's uh, like a boy has come to get him, and they go to the house, and he kind of goes into this like little bit shabby neighborhood. It's a um, one of those like tenant buildings where the tenant lives on like the ground floor, and then there's several apartments above, and. When he gets there, it's this woman named Mrs. Davies or Davis. And she kind of begins to mutter, I must confess my sin. And he, um, re the Reverend kind of like gives, he gives a ministry, which I think is also normal when you're dying to like kind of get like be, be prayed for maybe. Um, okay. I'm also not Catholic, so I'm kind of making this up. Okay. <laughs> and at the end um, of him talking, and I think they had been having a start, uh, like a conversation. She had been telling, I guess, him her, her quote unquote sins. And she utters, stopped. It must be stopped. And as she dies, he reassures her that he will do what is necessary. And that's all we hear from her? Yeah. So I'm sure more happened. But this third point mm -hmm. of view is this, that's all the, all, those are all the phrases we get. Mm -hmm. Okay. But you can kind of tell like something, yeah, something thing is going on here that we we do not have the full picture right um so he leaves there as either as she dies or as maybe the the uh the doctor arrives and he goes to a coffee shop because he kind of says in it he's thinking in his head he should write down all those names that she mentioned before he forgets them and so mm -hmm. this is again we she said a bunch of names we did not hear any of that from the book um and so he goes in he gets a piece of paper from the coffee bar guy again coffee bar is big deal <laughs> or cafe <laughs> and he writes them down and his uh the pocket in his pants had a hole in it so he shoves the paper into his shoe and then as he's on his way back to the church or the church house wherever he lives um it's super foggy and he decides that he's going to take a shortcut through one of the alleyways is he gonna die and uh, i know sorry and Hi. as he's walking through the alleyway he gets coshed on the back of the head he gets so hit what? on the back of the head Oh, okay. they, they've <laughs> they've said coshed like c-o-s-h-e-d that's definitely british but hit on the back of the head is good enough <laughs> very british <laughs> yeah in my notes i just keep writing like names and then dead 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 <laughs> <laughs> i know we haven't been introduced to a lot of living people yet have yeah. we? <laughs> we're on chapter two <laughs> yeah you know more exciting there you go Mm -hmm. So now we kind of jump to uh, the next day and this guy, Dr. Corrigan, is entering the DDI's office, which stands for, this isn't important, but it stands for Divisional Detective Inspector. And so the guy's name is Inspector Lejeune. And him and Dr. Corrigan are kind of discussing this case because Lejeune is the um, inspector in charge and Dr. Corrigan is the sur like police surgeon. So he's been the one um, examining the body. Okay. 
Um, and they kind of talk about how the reverend's head had been bashed in several times. So they're kind of saying it was a little gruesome, like one blow would have killed him, but someone just wanted to be sure or like really went at it. And his pockets had been completely turned out. There was nothing left in them, but they had found the paper with names on it in his shoe. Mm. And so at first they think that's a little weird until they they realize the um, someone from the church who was responsible for sewing back the holes in his pockets had said that she hadn't sewn them back up. I don't know what that position is, but they find out that like it was normal for him to put stuff in his shoe. Wouldn't that be uncomfortable? I don't know. Sorry, off topic, but yes, like, I agree. something in your shoe. Ugh. I I guess I don't know. He's I don't know. I I don't know. I have nothing to say about. <laughs> I guess it was just a small piece of paper. I don't Maybe he did that with coins or stuff. I, you know what? I don't know. Yeah, that's true. Or like a pen. Yeah, small things. And so then they read off the list of names. And so I'll read them slowly so you can copy them down. Okay. Um, for listeners at home, feel free to copy them down if you want as well. Or don't. The names were Ormerod, Sandford, Parkinson, Hesketh Dubois, Shaw, Harmonsworth, Tuckerton, Corrigan, question mark, and Delafontaine, question mark. So then they also, um, because they realize like Hesketh Dubois is a really uncommon name, they're able to just look it up in the yellow pages. And they find that Lady Hesketh Dubois had died five months ago. And they do, they think that the list of names is important. They think it's connected to something bigger, but they're not sure what. Bet you it's a red herring. <laughs> <laughs> If you've listened to the podcast, there's been many of those. Yeah, so many. <laughs> so we're still on third person point of view and we get Mr. Lejeune. Mr. Lejeune is going to see the lady who owned the building where Mrs. Davis, the woman who had died with the reverend, had lived. Okay. And the tenant manager, the owner of the building, she says that Mrs. Davis was a business-like woman. She was matter-of-fact and she worked really hard. That's kind of her description of her personality. And she also kind of says that she worked for one of those companies that does door-to-door taking surveys about household products. And so it's called like the type of company is kind of called like consumer research. And I guess it was, you don't see that so much now because we get ads online, but it was that type of thing about being like, what shampoo do you use? Um, why do you like it? Why do you use it? What soap do you use? Would you like, do you ever use other soaps? Like those kinds of questions. Okay. I imagine that people reading this book in 1960 would have been like, ah, yes, those people, but for you and me. Now we just have all the Google AI. um, Yeah, exactly. (laughs) It's all happening automatically. Yeah. They, when you shop with your credit card, they find out what you buy and then they know. Yeah. Oh, how I love it so much. <laughs> um, they also find when they're looking through her house that she had very few possessions. She basically had one trunk and like that was all, like everything that fit into the trunk was what she lived with. She had no letters from anybody. And she also, while she was dying, or she thought she'd just been sick and she hadn't wanted to see any doctors, she said it was just the flu. She kept saying, it's just the flu, it's just the flu, it's fine. Um, and then as the the owner kind of says, she had brought the reverend up to Mrs. Davies' apartment and as she was leaving and closing the door, she had heard Mrs. Davis said something about wickedness and horses. So she kind of thought like maybe horse, like she 
was gambling on horse racing and that's why she needed to confess her sins. That's the owner of the apartment's theory. Oh, so this is still when Father Gorman or Reverend Gorman came over. To yeah, so it's she she brings that. she brought Reverend Gorman up to the apartment and as she was leaving him there and closing the door, she heard that's what she heard, wickedness and horses. And she she okay. didn't catch very much of the conversation and then she went back downstairs. Okay. So there had been two people who reported seeing the reverend in the street that night between, I think the police had put out a call for like 7.45 to 8.15, something like that. Um, There was like some woman and then this guy called Mr. Osborne, who was a, he was like the chemist at the local pharmacy. I love how they call it chemist. They just, yeah, right. Scientific, you know? (laughs) Yeah. I I need to say pharmacy just because, yeah, the chemist shop kind of sounds weird. But yeah, like they're brewing up potions or something. Yeah, yeah. So they go to see the woman's kind of a bust. She doesn't give any useful information. But Mr. Osborne, he had seen the Reverend pass that night and had been, he kind of says it had been a slow evening. So, like, even though there was fog, when there were like glint, like bits between the fog, I was able to, like, I was right at the window because no one was in the shop, anyways. Mm-hmm. And he had seen. The Reverend passed, and then a short way later, a man had passed behind him. And he he said, Mr. Osborne says he thinks the man was following the Reverend, just because um, when the Reverend would kind of slow down, this man would kind of slow down. Um, And he said he didn't think that at the time, but like thinking back on it, that's how he felt. And he describes the man as like a guy with a big Adam's apple, a very large, like beak-like nose, and he'd been about 50 or something like that. And the reason, the other reason he says he noticed all of this is that, like, ever since he was a kid, he'd wanted to be a witness at a trial. Like, that was, which I feel like people can relate to maybe of our generation in terms of, like, watching crime shows. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. But because of that, he, like, paid attention to faces. And he said it was really good for business. Like, he could, if you came in one month and then, like, three months later you came back in, he'd remember your name or stuff like that. Or you'd remember what you ordered. I wish I had that skill. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I can't remember names or faces, really. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then he says he kind of he's he seems like a very talkative guy so he like he keeps talking to um, Inspector Lejeune and one of the things he says is that he's going to be selling the business soon. Okay. Okay. Um, so he's quite he's retiring. So I guess maybe just to say like if you want to find me again, I'm going to be out in the country. Country. <laughs> or, or suburbs. <laughs> Anywhere you please. I had one question um, about when like when did uh, the two people say they saw the Reverend at seven something. It was like 7.45 to 8.15. The timing okay. isn't too, too important, but just to know that it was like kind of a later evening. Okay. So now we jump back to Mark Easterbrook's perspective. And his he's he's been out to see the play Macbeth with his, with his friend Hermia. So that's an interesting name, but it's kind of like... Mm-hmm. You're kind of getting like, is he, is this girl his girlfriend? Or are they just like, what's going on here a little bit? I've seen Macbeth, they're like having a very intellectual conversation about it, and then they go out to lunch, and they end up being seated next to a friend of theirs, who I think was also another intellectual guy named David, and he's brought, they call, they call this girl his newest silly girl, and her name is Poppy, and the idea is that David only dates really dumb girls, because he doesn't, he like, wants to like, take his mind off being an intellectual. Like, it's kind of, it's a little gross. Yeah, I feel like I don't know. You don't need a dumb girl. You can still talk to yeah. people. <laughs> but he just, I just, I, he just wants to, I don't know. 
anyways, this girl's name's Poppy. And so they're kind of having a good conversation. Um, they're talking about the play. I didn't write down too much of their conversation because it got a little confusing with like quoting Macbeth and stuff like that in Hamlet. And I, I have read both those books. However, it was in high school. And I didn't know if you would have had read those books. So I didn't write it down. <laughs> I did read Macbeth in grade 11. But fun fact, mm-hmm. my school just didn't have enough copies of Hamlet for all the grade 12 students. No. So That's we watched, hilarious. or yeah, we, we did, what is it? Midsummer Night's Dream instead, which was so much okay. easier. <laughs> I was but, that one in grade nine. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> okay, well, good. I didn't write anything down. I think they talk about like who killed Hamlet and, but they don't say who it was. They're like, we all remember who Spoiler. killed Hamlet. <laughs> oh yeah, sorry, spoilers. <laughs> so they're talking about that. And then David says, David says that he would cast the witches in Macbeth as just regular old women. So I guess I did write some things about Macbeth um, to give. I uh, Macbeth is a play about a guy who power gets to his head. And at one point there's witches in the story. And I think they cast a spell on him. I kind of forget. Honestly. Just remember. I, I don't know. I remember <laughs> there being like a, a really famous quote about like blood, get it off me or something like yes. that. Yes. There you go. That sums up Macbeth. Oh, we did it. Good, good, good for us. <laughs> so he says he just cast him as regular women because he's kind of like, what's more terrifying than actual witches? It's just regular people who are like psychopaths. So that's what he says. Yeah. And then he kind of, you agree? <laughs> it's always scary when like when you re- don't realize that like you could be among psychopaths or like sociopaths. Yeah. 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 I don't know. <laughs> so that's kind of his opinion of how how you would cast people. And he says that every village has a witch. And so it's someone who it's not it's kind of superstition, but it's things like you everyone just, you know, knows to keep them happy because they don't want their cat or their child to be the next victim. Hmm. So then they talk about um, in Macbeth, you could just hire a murderer. And like that doesn't exist these days. And I think that gets into like near the end of the play where Macbeth just like got people to kill other people for him sounds familiar okay okay <laughs> i'm sorry people at home that are really into macbeth yeah they're probably just like yelling at us right now they're cringing yes sorry <laughs> sorry sorry but something about hiring a murderer wait is macbeth the murder mystery can you use that as one of your books <laughs> well, not anymore i've spoiled it oh no <laughs> all right hamlet then yes hamlet i think we can do except i have moving on um and poppy so they were talking about that it doesn't exist anymore you can just hire someone to murder for you and poppy pipes in doesn't it only it's very expensive the pale horse and all that kind of thing and then all the three of them david mark and hermia kind of look at her like what and david kind of starts to question her about like what like what did you say pale horse what's that and um she kind of admits that she must be confused with something else and like she doesn't really know what she's talking about and she just kind of like heard someone else say it and she doesn't really she doesn't know anything and she gets all flustered and uh the three of them just kind of wave it off as like oh she's just this silly girl it's one of david's silly girls she's the witch isn't she oh man (laughs) (laughs) maybe so many theories i mean everybody can be a witch right it's a gender neutral term i think so no a wizard warlock Mm one of those two yeah but yes anyone can have mystic powers 
So the next day, Mark gets a call from Mrs. Oliver, and she's kind of said, okay, yes, I will do the FET, like I'll come sign books. But she wants to make sure that there's going to be like no events she has to go to afterwards, because she really hates like having to like, you know, do an event and then go on to like a pub. Like she's like, what are, what are their, their pub there called? Like the Pale Horse? Like I don't want to have to go to that or whatever. Oh, another mention of the Pale Horse. Mark, Mark's kind of like he's saying that kind of idea of like once you've heard something once, you start hearing it all the time. Mm. Which I think is so true. Yeah, it is. And so, yeah, he kind of gives a start and he's like, what? And Mrs. Oliver says that she's like, yeah, maybe I got the name wrong, but it's just some local pub, isn't it? Like, I think so in that in that town. Um, and then she kind of goes, or maybe I've been mistaken. Like, I don't really know. So nobody knows. Every time they mention <laughs> the horse, they just get confused. Exactly. So hopefully we get some clarification soon. Mm-hmm. So then I think he basically hangs up the phone and then he call, gets a call from his godmother is Lady Hesketh Dubois, who was the woman that we know from that list earlier who had died. He gets a call from her lawyer because he had been bequeathed in her will to choose like a few of her watercolors um, because he had really admired her paintings. I don't think she painted, but she owned a lot of paintings. Okay. So he says, yep, yeah, oh, he'll go. He'll go right away to the house to pick them up. Like he's not doing anything. And so he picks up the pictures, and as he's leaving the house, he runs into an old friend of his, Dr. Corrigan, the police surgeon. Does everybody just know everybody? <laughs> yeah, it's like it's like when people say, oh, you know, don't you know everyone in Canada? It's like, don't you know everyone in London? <laughs> it's a fair assumption, I guess. Canada's pretty small. Yeah. Same with London. <laughs> <laughs> I know you, and you're in Ottawa. That's so far away. So far <laughs> We know people from Calgary. <laughs> oh my gosh, that's so many Englands away. <laughs> oh my gosh, it is. <laughs> it, so it is like, wow, everyone's connected. Is this a book or something? How is it so convenient? Mm-hmm. Wait, is this, you said this all takes place in Chelsea? No, he oh. just lives in Chelsea. Oh, okay. Mark lives in Chelsea. I don't, let's assume her name is Lady Hesketh Dubois. So she is a lady, which I assume she has a lot of money. Which I then assume she lives in a mansion. Which I don't know where mansions are in London. But... <laughs> it's a lot of assumptions, but nice. Okay. All right, okay. Let's let's say I'm gonna assume that mansions aren't in Chelsea. I assume that Chelsea is apartments. There you go. <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> I'll, I'll go. I'll go with that assumption. <laughs> Great. Then Corrigan offers to take him out for lunch because they haven't seen each other in a while, and he also he had come he had come up to Lady Hesketh Dubois' house because this list of names really got to him and he wants to know more about it. So the fact that it's his friend, Mark Easterbrook's godmother that passed away, he's like, I want to pick your brain. So they go out to lunch and Corrigan fills in Mark on all the happenings of Father Gorman and all like with the list of names and all of that. He's kind of saying how they, the police have gotten nowhere. Like they've looked into all of the names, but some of these names are so common. There's so many people and all they have is last names and they don't, no, like, is it blackmail? Was there some, like, scam going on? Like, how are these people connected? They're not sure. Okay. And then on a hunch, Mark goes to see Poppy. She works at a florist shop, and he goes to question her more about the pale horse. Because now that he's heard it a couple of times, he's kind of like, what's going on with that? And she freaks out. As soon as he mentions it, she, like, drops what was in her hands, and she's like, starts shaking. She's clearly very scared. And she kind of tells him, like, I have no idea what you're talking about. Like, we're not supposed to talk to customers. Like, you should get out of here. Whoa. Not a normal response. Okay. <laughs> no, it doesn't feel like it, does it? I sense conspiracy. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> Impossible. <laughs> In these books? 
Oh, man. Okay, so Poppy's clearly either under a spell or is the witch herself. (laughs) (laughs) That's what I'm going with. Okay, got it, got it. So now we jump, I think, up ahead in time, maybe a week or two, and we're at the fete that is being hosted by Cousin Rhoda of Mark's, and it's gone extremely well. They they give a whole bunch of examples of, like, what you would do at a fete. Um, Someone won the pig. There was a bunch of bottles of beer that were won. People suspect other people of cheating in games. Like, you know, typical fair events. Mm -hmm. What was this for again? So it ends up being for, they're raising money for the church tower restoration. So I think every year they have a fete and they raise money for different things. So last year was like the Red Cross. I'm making that up because I forget what it was, but it's like that kind of thing. Okay. And so then they have dinner and it's this party. So the people at dinner are the cousin Rhoda and her husband, Mark Easterbrook. Uh, Mrs. Oliver. Then we have the vicar and the vicar's wife, and then this girl called Ginger. And it's just all people from basically all people from the town or like close friends of Rhoda. Okay. Uh, and so they have at dinner. Mark asks about the pale horse because he's like, "Is this a pub in town or not?" And everyone's like, "Oh yeah, that's the like it's really normal." They're like, "That's the old inn. It was this inn that was has been around since like the 1600s, and now a." Three old, like, middle-aged women live there. They've turned it into a house for themselves. Three of them? Oh, no. Yeah. Like that. Hmm. I wonder. Mm -hmm. So the house belongs to this woman named Thurza Gray, and that's spelled T-H-Y-R-Z-A. So pronounce that however you think it should be pronounced. I've been saying Thurza. Your guess is as good as mine. (laughs) Whatever. Thurza. Thurza Gray. (laughs) And she lives there with her friend Sybil, and they have a cook named Bella. So that's the three of them. Thursa, Sybil, and Bella. Okay. And the vicar's wife starts talking about them, and she says that all three of them are witches. And they're involved with the occult, and she says it very matter-of-fact. Like, it's just not, like, speculating. She's just like, this is how it is. This is how it's always going to be. Like, they're just witches. Like, you know, get used to it. And then they kind of say Sybil had been telling fortunes at the Fet, So that would, um, you know typical fortune teller and Rhoda says that they should go visit them for tea tomorrow because she's kind of like they're pretty it's a very really cool house like it's so old you'd really like to see it and like they're kind of cool women in the first place so we should go see them do you have any other theories um as of now already maybe maybe this is too early (laughs) How, how better question how do you feel about the three women I mean they feel like they're just normal women right like like what David was saying um yeah who was the one who suggested um, going to visit them? Was that Rhoda? Yeah, Rhoda, the cousin. Oh, she, she's been in here a lot. Maybe she's actually one of them, or like is a mastermind between, behind the mm, three women. She's involved somehow. I'm not sure. Yeah. Oh, I'm so confused now. I just kept going back to Sybil because that's also the name of the fortune teller or whatever it's called in Harry Potter. <laughs> oh, this yeah. was written first. So clearly J.K. Rowling stole it. only possible thing (laughs) of course so the next day they go to they say it's kind of just a normal day they go to everyone goes to church and then they go to visit this man called mr venables and they're going because he's like a super interesting man he was invalided with polio and so because but he's also like super rich and so he used to travel a lot and now because he can't travel he just like buys artifacts from around the world and so the idea is like mark is gonna love this guy because he's like he's an intellectual he's gonna love all these artifacts whatever and why are they visiting him just because just because small town that's what you do okay (laughs) it's like like that's the thing to do like there's no attractions in town there's nothing to see 
you just go to see people. Yeah, that's, that's my understanding. <laughs> so they describe him as like he's a thin face, like beak nose kind of guy. Um, he's around thin fifty. Face, beak nose. Oh no. Okay. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no good. Keep it up. <laughs> um, and he kind of looks the way he's dressed, like looks old fashioned. And he also talks about like the evils of the world. And the way they kind of what they start describing is like what what makes a great person like what is greatness and they're talking about like how we typically describe great people but would you consider hitler a great man would you consider napoleon a great or stalin a great man i think is what they say and so it's this idea of like i think rhoda says like yeah for sure like they're great men even if they are evil like evil can still be greatness in a way Um, and so this is one of the areas where the book kind of gets into psychology. And so I, I didn't take notes on all of it because it's kind of confusing, but that's the summary of what they're talking about. Okay. I think it's, yeah, it's kind of just like what is good and what yeah. is bad. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Like moral, there's moral sense and things like that, or people's definition of those words. Yeah. So that's, that's kind of what they're talking about. And then they head to the pale horse for tea. Um, and it's described as, this was kind of funny, a genuine half-timbered building. What does that mean? Does that... <laughs> I was going to ask if that like gives you a picture in your mind. I don't know, man. You'll have to look it up. <laughs> so, kind of fun fact. Um, I went to the Gat- Gatineau Park Mill the other day. And it's literally like half of the building is wood and half of it is brick slash stone from the outside. Ooh, so, maybe why? it's like that. I think, I don't know. I think, like, the wood maybe covered up the brick or something. Oh, for, that's possible. For aesthetic purposes. I don't know. I've, I've looked up what a half-timbered house is, and it is. It's one of those, you, like, if you look them up, you can totally picture them. They're, one, like, they're whitewashed with, like, the black um, black wood strips Ooh. that are, like, decoratively placed around the house. And they're maybe, oh, like, it feels, yeah. like, almost bigger on top than on the bottom. And, the, the like, the first floor is stone, and then the second floor of the house is like the wood stuff cool yeah i'm looking at some pictures right now and they're, they look pretty sick they remind yeah. me a lot of like i don't know hansel and gretel's village yes yeah that kind of thing that adds up. <laughs> yeah so that's what the pale horse looks like so that was this old inn and the three middle-aged women kind of come out to meet them and they that's kind of described with a little bit of a slightly sinister vibe I think Mark kind of describes it as like he feels like they can read his mind. Like they're look the way Bella for specifically the cook is looking at him is like this um piercing kind of glance that like she knows what he's thinking is how he feels. And then Thursa Gray, the owner of the house or one of the one women, she pulls Mark aside to show him her library. I think she can tell that he'll appreciate it, which he does. He's thoroughly impressed because she just has books from everywhere. And she has like first editions of all of these books that are super uncommon. He's thinks really cool. But then she also kind of gives him this impression that it's again, this like psychology thing where she's talking about what her powers are and what she's capable of doing. And she's saying, wouldn't it be neat? Like witches have been around forever. And there's always these ideas like that they poison people or that there was these like crazy, like rare poisons, yada, yada, yada. Um, but what, you know, it's the 21st, it's, I guess, the 20th century, and we've kind of evolved from then. We have all of this technology now. Wouldn't it be great if you could control someone's mind and can kind of convince them subconsciously to die, like just to convince their cells to die? 
So she said, did she just bring up witches and all of this basically out of nowhere? Um, maybe a little bit. Maybe it's kind of that, that, um, the barn where her library is, is their seance room. So I think Ooh, she's also okay. kind of talking about their seances. They're, they're definitely not, they're not hiding that they're witches. Like that's something oh. they talk about. Oh, okay. So it's, it's just like actually everybody knows that they're witches. Yeah. 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 So when, when the vicar's wife, had kind of said it matter of factly, it wasn't something that she was like, oh, this is hush hush. It was like, oh yeah, no, this is just the fact in the village. Like everyone knows it's the three witches that live in the pale horse. Mm. And to convince somebody to die. Yeah. So it's, it's, he's kind of going, oh, so you like, you can telepath, like not tell, I think maybe he's asking, you can telepathically convince them to commit suicide. And she's like, no, 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 it's not telepathy. It's technology. It's like a, it's like waves. Like, you know, we have radio, we have television. Oh. It's waves that if you're not commit, you're not convincing them to commit suicide. You're just, it's making their, like, a physical reaction in their body to just get, like, sick and die. Oh, weird. Okay. Yeah. So he's, this leaves a pretty strong impression on him. Like, they leave the house, and he's very unsettled by all that's going on. And Mrs. Oliver is also feeling unsettled, but specifically with Sybil, because she's, like, she's such a stupid woman that she feels that someone could just control her very easily. So she's not she's not afraid of Sybil herself, just what Sybil, the person, could be used to do. Mm. Okay. So they're discussing how to get home, and Mark is offering to drive Mrs. Oliver, but she kind of says, so no, like, I can't, I can't, I have to leave, like, on time tomorrow. I have to leave pretty early because I need to make it back for the funeral of my friend, Mary Delafontaine. And... This name kind of rings a bell to Mark, and then he remembers that that was that woman she was talking about that one day, and then De La Fontaine was also one of the names on that list of names. Yeah, the old one who can't, also can't grow her hair back. Yeah, yeah, whose hair was falling out. Yeah, and, and sh- she was on the list of names with a question mark, right? With a question mark, yeah. Mm, okay, and this is Mrs. Oliver's friend? Uh, yeah, so Mrs. Okay. Oliver is going to the funeral. Ah, all these people are dying. Uh, yeah. <laughs> So Mark manages to get away from the group of people. He feels like he needs to go for a walk by himself and just think. And he ends up heading to the King's Arms, which is like the the motel, hotel, guest house, whatever, in town. So he goes there, and part of his reason is he wants to check the guest book. And so he flips back a few months, and he sees the names Sanford and Parkinson appear in the book. Like, he's looking for the names of the people that were on that list of names. Yeah, But both Sanford and Parkinson's are very common names. So he's like, that doesn't really add up. But he does see this name, Martin Digby. And that's not going to come up later, but it's only to say that the Lady Hesketh Dubois had a nephew whose name was Martin Digby. And Mark knows that because he's her godson. Okay, so all of these people are somehow related, maybe related to this. Yeah, it's like no guarantee, but he's like, this feels a little weird. It's just there's a possibility. Yeah, okay. So he, he really wants to talk to someone about it. He feels like he has like a whole bunch of stuff going on in his head. And so he goes to see the vicar. But when he gets there, the vicar's wife opens the door. And it's kind of this realization of, no, she's the right person to talk to. And she kind of says, my husband doesn't understand evil. And I can tell by the way you look, you want to talk about evil. She can just tell. Okay. Yeah, I think you. they kind of give this impression that like, teenagers who have gotten pregnant would come to talk to her to like figure out what to do or like you know marital problems and stuff like she kind of deals with that side of things okay yeah or she gets them set straight and then they go talk to the vicar afterwards like she kind of sorts it out is the vicar like somebody you're supposed to go talk to for like counseling or 
So the like vicar is talk about things. <laughs> this so this is where I'm getting at when I was trying to remember what's a priest. Is it Catholic or not? I think a vicar is the Anglican version of a reverend for Catholics. Okay. So basically, people just come up to him and talk about themselves and things that they're going through. Yeah. He okay. would be. Basically, he would be a person who probably went through um, more schooling than a lot of the people in town. Like, he would be more well-versed. And um, you might confess your sins to him or just kind of get advice generally. He would be seen as that figure as a member of the church because the church was that much. It was still a big deal, even in the 60s. Okay. That makes sense. (laughs) So the vicar's wife is able to set him on the right path. She kind of gets him in the mindset of what he needs to do. And she basically says... That something serious is going on and something needs to be done quickly. There's too much wickedness. So she's she kind of shows him the way of like, no, this is serious and you need to keep you need to keep going. Someone needs to do something. Mm, okay. So now we jump back to the third person point of view with the inspector Lejeune, and he's sitting in his office when Doctor Corrigan kind of comes in and Lejeune has been reading a letter and so he shows it to Doctor Corrigan. And it's from that witness from before, Mr. Osborne. And Mr. Osborne said that he saw the man again. Um, He had been at a church vet in um, the country, because now he's retired. And he'd been there to meet Mrs. Oliver, the famous detective writer, because she was signing books. And he says the man was now in a wheelchair. So he thinks he must have had an accident since he last saw him. And he had looked him up. He had kind of like asked around about who the man was. And he says it's the guy's name is Mr. Venables, and he's from Much Deeping. From what? Much Deeping. What is that? That's the name of the town. Oh. <laughs> okay. <laughs> like Much, it's that's exactly how it's spelled: D E E P I N G, like Deeping. <laughs> okay. It's not too important. All right. <laughs> other, other than like Rhoda, the cousin, where Miss Oliver had been signing the books for the church vet, like that's much deeping, and the guy's name's Mr. Venables. Okay, yeah. So every, everything's kind of coming together a little bit, yeah. I'm wait. So I'm just a little bit confused right now. Was Corrigan? Yeah. So Mark Easterbrook was at the fet yeah. with all these people, and then he met Mr. Venables, but he didn't know about the fact that Mr. Osborne said um, all the stuff about like a man was following the reverend. Um, I think Corrigan had told him that, but he doesn't know okay. who Mr. Osborne is because he was just this right. witness. He would have never met him. Right. So theoretically, even if they had crossed paths at the church vet, like he, they wouldn't have recognized each other. Okay. And so like he he has no clue that Mr. Osborne was talking about Mr. Venables. No. And so no this idea. is where everything kind of like comes together more, I guess. It, it's coming together for us as the reader, but mm-hmm. Inspector Lejeune and Mark have never met yet. So they're not, their cause aren't passing. They're kind of on separate tracks right now okay but but they both know about or know who mr venables is now yeah so now mark mark has met him lejeune just kind of has this idea that osborne is talking about him okay so we're back to mark um mark is trying to get his like girlfriend hermia to help him with this like what's going on with the pale horse to figure out but basically he's on this kind of like bend of everyone's being like, oh yeah, you and Hermia are going to get married. And he's kind of going, oh my gosh, no, she's like, she acts like my mother. Like she's so boring. And it's the same thing with this where he asks for her help because he knows like she's so smart, like she'd be perfect to talk to. And she kind of says like, oh no, I'm too busy. And so he's like, my gosh, this girl is so dull and unimaginative. Like get me away from her. Oh, rude i know a little sad he doesn't say that to her he just thinks it (laughs) okay that's any better 
So then the next morning, he tries to call his friend Dr. Corrigan, like the doctor, and get him involved. Mm -hmm. Um, And sure enough, he comes out for a drink. And Corrigan is more willing to talk about what's going on, but he admits that the idea that someone could have a death wish, that's what the the Thursa Grey witch woman had called it. He's like, that's ludicrous. He's not going to believe that that's a real thing. And he's a doctor, right? So yeah, his, I guess what he says is more like it holds more value. Well, it does, except that he kind of agrees that it's a possibility because he's kind of saying we don't like that. We don't know everything about the brain. Like we, we basically know nothing about it. And so it is a possibility, but he feels that it's extremely unlikely. And so that's what kind of Mark was asking for. Like, is there any possibility? Because if you tell me there's absolutely none, then that like that solves it. But if you can't be 100% certain, then... Um, And then he kind of goes like, sure, there's this very, very small possibility, but certainly not by this random woman called Thursa Gray. Hmm. Um, Then Corrigan tells Mark about the letter from that witness, Osborne. Now Mark kind of has a little bit more information than Dr. Corrigan because he tells him, oh, well, Venables has polio. Like he's had polio for the last three years. He's been in a wheelchair, wheelchair, like his limbs were atrophied. And Corrigan goes, oh, well, then yeah, that kind of fixes that. He's out. And they say that all the names on the list so far they've been able to identify everyone on the list of having died of a natural cause all of them now okay that's new yeah so it's um they don't they don't go into like i know i gave you that whole list of people they don't go into all of them but they're able to have identified everyone or or found at least one person of that name who had died of a natural cause in the last several months or a year even corrigan not except corrigan oh okay and that's kind of interesting because Corrigan was on the list and it's this doctor. And so the doc- the doctor kind of says yeah. he's been visiting all the Corrigans because he's trying to, he, like, he's like, it's my namesake. Like, I feel like it's really important. <laughs> yeah. Oh, what if he's the last one to die? Are all these people women? Does that matter? Um, we don't know. And no, it doesn't. Okay. I don't think it plays into it. Okay. Hmm. And also, I'm confused about Venables. Had, was he in a wheelchair before as well? Like the fact that he had polio and his limbs had atrophied. We don't know, do we? Whether or not he was... In a wheelchair before what? Like, I don't know, before the, the beginning of this novel kind of thing. So this, yeah, he's had polio for three years. So definitely before the beginning of this novel. But he has he been in a wheelchair the entire time? Um, I mean, I guess it's kind of the assumption, but let's, the police are going to look into it. Okay, just because, yeah, I think, because Mr. Osborne said that he was following the reference. So I just assumed that yeah. he was walking. He was walking. Yeah, yeah. The Osborne didn't mention a wheelchair. Yeah. Huh. Anyways. Those are just my questions for now. Good. So I think I think I'll be able to answer them shortly. Oh. Actually, right away. It's it's right now. Ah, I've jumped the gun. <laughs> <laughs> You're ahead of things. <laughs> so Inspector Lejeune says he goes to visit Mr. Osborne at the the new suburb where he's retired to, and Osborne is really excited to talk more about this because again he's like this is my dream, and he tells them about like more about what he saw and then they both go inside for drinks like that's the thing that the police do is they come in and have a beer with you as they talk to you nice <laughs> yeah, much much cooler than i bet they are nowadays yeah um and so mr osborne is shocked to learn that it couldn't lejeune kind of goes it's impossible that it was mr venables that night because we have absolutely no doubt that his limbs are atrophied we he has a doctor on harley street he's like really um, respected guy and he confirms that his limbs have been atrophied for the last three years like he can't walk oh damn shouldn't have asked all those questions before <laughs> <laughs> yeah there you go so and so Osborne's pretty disappointed because he was again he was just excited he was excited about that trial and 
Lejeune suggests that he wouldn't have been able to see very well anyways due to the fog. So maybe he was, maybe Mr. Osborne was a little bit wrong with the description. And so it was, it was just a different person that maybe had like a slightly similar look, but Osborne stays like firm. He's like, I promise you, I, again, I've been studying faces my entire life. This is like my pride and joy that I'm really good at this. That's like, that was the man, like something is up. So now we jump back to Mark's perspective and he's super upset that both Hermia and Dr. Corrigan have turned him down to, to this kind of quest to figure out what's going on. And so he thinks to call the girl who had been at the FET and the dinner party with them after the FET. And it would also gone to the pale horse. And he's kind of like, she's perfect. She kind of already has this idea what's going on and she lives in town. And so that was the girl with the nickname Ginger, who we didn't really talk too much about before. And he finds out from Mrs. Oliver that her real name or her full name is Catherine Corrigan. Ooh, okay. And so he calls her and she is super down to investigate. Like she immediately starts making plans about like what her role is going to be and what Mark needs to start doing and who they're going to interview and all that. Like she's, she's the perfect accomplice. (laughs) Until she dies of natural causes. (laughs) Of natural causes. So Ginger gets Mark to, the first thing he tells her him to do is arrange a date with David and Poppy. So the four, like the four of them will go on a date. And she says she'll tackle Poppy because Mark hadn't been able to talk to her before. But she's like, mm, I think she'll talk to a woman. Like, I'll figure that out. And she tells Mark that Mark needs to tackle the stepmother of the girl, Tommy Tuckerton, who had died. And she kind of goes, um, the stepmother is like, she has a lot of money. Like, she'll, I've looked into it. Um, she lives in this, like, specific type of house with a specific architecture and I know it's not your field of research but a person like this stepmother woman won't know that so go interview her okay um and the idea is that he'll throw in the mention of the pale horse and see if she has any reaction to the stepmom okay yeah yeah said uh, mention it to the stepmom and then ginger suggests that the reason Thursa gray had told specifically mark about the mind control stuff is like he'd pulled she had pulled mark aside into another room was because there maybe had been some mention that he was asking Poppy about the pale horse. And so it had gotten back to Thursa Gray that Mark could be a possible client for this mind control stuff. Possible. Is it a client or is it somebody that they're trying to kill? <laughs> I don't know. We don't, we don't know that yet. Right. So that it's just, it's just Ginger kind of suggesting these things, but hope like, it's like, we'll hopefully have more information in a few days. Okay. Three days later, Ginger reports back that she had gotten an address out of Poppy. She had had like a lunch date with Poppy on her own. And so it, the name is 78 Municipal Buildings, Birmingham. And it's this name of, uh, it's this man called Bradley. And he quote unquote, settles the business side of the pale horse. So Poppy had like, Ginger had done a great job. She'd gotten all this out of Poppy, who seems to kind of, they kind of guess that Poppy doesn't really know what's going on. She just has a lot of friends who talk about it around her, thinking that she won't pick up on anything, but she is. How does Poppy know all of this, though? Just from those friends? Yeah, it seems that she's just like, she just picks it up, like she just hears it, and so is able to kind of repeat it back. Hmm. Okay. Then Mark goes to see this guy, this guy Bradley, at 78 Municipal Building, Birmingham, and he's a, he ends up being a disbarred lawyer, which I think just means you were... Like you were a professional lawyer and then you stopped taking tests or something, or maybe like you did something really bad. And so you're not allowed to like technically be a lawyer anymore. Yeah. I think it's the latter. The latter. Okay. Mm -hmm. He's a disbarred lawyer. And he says 
he's a betting man. That's like, so Mark is going into this place kind of knowing nothing. The whole reason he's going is to try and get more information and figure out what is going on. What does the quote unquote business side of things mean? And so he kind of says, let's say this is um, the Bradley guy, the disbarred lawyer saying, let's say if you bet a hundred pounds, someone will live until Christmas. I'll bet you 5,000 that they won't live until Christmas. Well, that's ominous. Yeah. So do you kind of like, they're not saying out loud what's going on, but he's kind of saying like, it's murder. For you're hire. basically paying for murder. Yeah. Who was talking about that before? Oh, I don't remember anymore. But anyways, okay. So <laughs> the witches are not witches. They are just people dealing with murders. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's, the, I think that's kind of the idea Mark is kind of getting. Yeah. And so Brad, oh, and so now we can confirm. He, I think Bradley asks Mark, have you been to the pale horse? And Mark, like, he's like, do I show my cards? Do I not? And he's like, I think I will. And so he goes like, yeah, Thursday Gray is kind of fantastic. Bradley agrees. And he kind of just says, but that's just it. Black magic can't hold up in court. So he's kind of saying the person you are going to bet will live to Christmas and I will bet won't or whatever day you specify. If anyone brought it to court and they brought these like witches into the courtroom and someone tried to say that like they killed someone with black magic, the, the case would be thrown out. Like you can't argue that. It's not a real thing. Yeah. Or like, is it? It's kind of what he's saying. He's like, I uh, like, I don't know. How would you argue black magic? <laughs> exactly. So they're like, you can't, like, if they're able to kill them with black magic. Like, you can't, that's not a legal case. Yeah. So then from there, Mark goes to interview Mrs. Tuckerton, Tommy, Tommy's stepmother. And he kind of does it with a lot of reluctance. He's like, I think he's just kind of shy. He doesn't want to do this, but like, ginger, strong woman forces him to go. <laughs> And so they have like a lot of conversation about the the decorations around the house and Mark kind of thinks they're all ugly and he's this this woman seems to really love money. He's really getting the feeling that she she didn't always have money. She kind of married this guy. Like she's the stepmother. She married this guy, she married rich. And so she skimps on paying people, but she loves to have like gaudy furniture that's clearly super expensive but doesn't look that good. Mm-hmm. And then we get into the interesting part. As he's leaving, he says he had met her st- stepdaughter, Tommy Tuckerton, and then goes, oh, um, and you knew about the pale horse? And the fear on her face is palpable. Um, and she tries to say no, but Mark can clearly tell. Okay, she knows what it is. Oh my goodness, everybody's just scared of this place. Yeah. Okay. So they kind of, I think Ginger and Mark go back to talk, and they kind of get this idea, okay, so... The stepmother hired, like, she clearly went to the pale horse. So she went to Bradley and she placed a bet on Tommy Tuckerton, her stepdaughter, because her stepdaughter, like Tommy Tuckerton, who actually inherited all of her father's money. And the father had only left an allowance to the stepmother, like a a certain amount of money a year. But the daughter had gotten the real money. So they're, they're kind of saying, okay, we can see what's going on here to a point. Wait, is the dad dead? Yes, so the dad the dad died. That's why Tommy Tuckerton was so rich, is her dad had died oh, right. like a year ago. Right, sorry, I forgot about that. Okay. And the um, the terms of the will were that T- Tommy Tuckerton wouldn't inherit the full sum of money until she turned 21. And so she wasn't 21 yet. Mm-hmm. Um, which basically means if she dies, it reverts back to going to the stepmother. Right, okay. So Ginger and Mark meet back up. Mark tells Ginger everything and they start to formulate on what to do next. Um, and they kind of know that they need to go back to Bradley. They need to get more information out of him. 
Um, and so they're like, how do we like, basically they're like, we need to hire Bradley or we need to hire the pale horse, but how like we have to put someone's life on the line, basically, like, what are we going to do? And they, Mark kind of admits that he had been married 15 years ago, um, but that they had been married, he had been married in England, but the girl he had married had died in Italy a few years later. So it's not on English records, which is like, you know, before internet times when if you died in a different country, it like didn't count. How does that even work? Like, do you just I don't, say, oh, they went missing? Or I think you just don't, I honestly don't know. Because you would think like taxes and stuff, that would be important. Yeah. And also like, if you try to marry again, what happens? Yeah. I don't know. Maybe you cross that bridge once you get there. What, whatever it is, it worked out well for Agatha Christie's story, where basically what they decide to do is Ginger will pretend to be Mark's wife from 15 years ago, mm-hmm. and she's going to, quote unquote, come back to reclaim Mark, but Mark wanted to, quote unquote, marry Hermia. And so it's this idea of like, perfect, you, Mark needs his old wife out of the way so he can marry Hermia. And so that's what they'll hire the pale horse to do. But Ginger will just be pretending to be the wife. But doesn't that still put her in danger? Yes, it does. And so Mark is like really upset with it. Like his chival- chival- chivalrous, chival- chivalry, 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 his manliness makes him want to like not put Ginger in harm's way. But she mm-hmm. kind of says, this is the only way. Like the people at Pale Horse know who I am. Like I can't fake that. Wait, but if she can't fake it, then what? Because she doesn't need to go to the pale horse. Only Mark does. Oh, I see. Okay. Yeah, because it's the only the person who want, who's betting against someone else's life. Right. Makes sense. I put that in air quotes. <laughs> so they also agree that Mark should first go to tell Inspector Lejeune everything so that he knows and kind of, if anything happens, can be there to help Ginger. Okay. So Mark goes to see Inspector Lejeune and tells him everything. <laughs> they say they will and then they do it. And the inspector knows of Bradley. He's like apparently one of those people that's like well known to the law, but they've never been able to fix a crime on him. Like he's a very, he's like, he's a slippery customer or whatever. I mean, he is a lawyer and he also did get disbarred. (laughs) Exactly. So they're kind of like, he knows the ins and outs of the law. He knows all the loopholes. Mm -hmm. Then the inspector asks Mark to describe Mr. Venables. Now, Mr. Um, Inspector Lejeune tells Mark that they can confirm he was a cripple. Like, he's telling him about the what he told Mr. Osborne, that they had seen the doctor. Mm-hmm. And they both agree that there is some agency, an agency that specializes in the removal of people due to natural causes. What? <laughs> okay. So I think that's that's kind of like a fancier way of saying, like, murder for hire. Murder for hire. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So Mark tells him of his and Ginger's plan now and the and kind of inspector warns him of the danger. Like he's kind of like, no, I don't think that someone can mind control kill you, but people are actually dying. Like we, we've confirmed that all of these people have died of natural causes. So, you know, just you're playing with fire. Mm-hmm. So now Mark goes back to Bradley's office this time to, quote, make a bet. And Mark kind of tells him the story about that they had created about this wife. And it seems that Bradley has already done his own investigations because without saying his name, Mark can tell that he knows who Hermia is, the the past girlfriend. Bradley can tell or Bradley knows who Hermia is? Yeah, it seems like he's done his own research. Like he he knows all about Mark. Okay, but not to the point where he knows about Mark's dead wife, right? No, no, no. no. Okay. No, I think they had just probably done surveillance on him. Okay. 
Um, then Mark is told that they will make a bet. And in a few days, he will go to the pale horse. He'll bring a piece of his wife's clothing. That's like, that's very important. If he brings like a glove or a scarf or something kind of with her, maybe DNA on it or scent on it. And then Bradley says he doesn't know anything else and he doesn't want to know because Mark is really asking questions. He's like playing up his character of like the cautious person and he's going, but what? So I go to the pale horse and then what happens? And Bradley's like, that's the beauty of it. Like, I don't ask questions. I, this is literally my job and I don't want to know anything else because it puts me in like, that would make me liable in the term, sense of the law. So I know nothing else. Okay. So, sucks for us. Cause I want to know what's going on. Yeah. Um, and then the other important thing is he's like, you can't go back to London. Like your wife is in London. It's important. We assure that you can't basically that you can't be held accountable and that means that you need to never have been near your wife. So does that mean that Mark is just stuck in Birmingham? Basically, yeah. Or can he be like anywhere else as well? He goes, what he does is he goes to stay with Rhoda because she's near the pale horse. He stays with her, his cousin. Uh, at much deeping? <laughs> at much deeping. You got it, girl. <laughs> so before the, the, the seance that's going to happen at the pale horse, he's feeling really uneasy. And he stops by the vicarage to kind of tell the vicar's wife everything that's going on because he like really trusts her. And he also says that he's going to be using their phone because he feels like he can't use the phone at Rhoda's house because he doesn't want her to know what's going on. Okay. And then he goes to the pale horse and it starts. And so they start by having like a light meal. It's a lot of silence, a lot of just kind of sitting there with your thoughts. And then they go out to the barn where the seance is going to take place. And it's much from the last time he saw it where it was like, this is the library or the barn. It's now nighttime. It's like dark. It's eerie. There is a divan, which is like a, you know, like a couch type thing in the middle of the room. And Thurza starts, like when she enters the room, she starts by putting on like metal mesh overalls, like almost like armor and gloves. What? Okay. <laughs> you know, just a little freaky. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and then Sybil comes into the room and she lays on the divan. And the idea is that she is going to be going into a trance. Okay. And so they, they perform that kind of ritual. They get her into a trance and Mark kind of goes, she looks like 20 years younger. Like her face is so relaxed. Like he can tell, yeah, she's in a trance. And then she starts, she almost like suddenly wakes up and suddenly she has this deep male voice. Okay. The voice says that it is Macandal and Thurza speaks to it while wheeling out this electronic contraption. And then she turns it on and it kind of starts to whir. And she points a takes out a compass and it points it in the direction. She's like, oh yeah, it's, this is this is the address. And there's a whole bunch of chanting. And then Bella, the cook, brings out a white cock, like a chicken, mm -hmm. and cuts its head off. And then they use the blood to dip. Um, he had brought a one of Ginger's gloves. And so they dip that in the blood. And there's a whole bunch more chanting. There's a bunch of drawing symbols on the floor. It's really freaky. And then um, kind of as suddenly as it started, it's over. Weird. I'm just thinking... So, like, he actually brought Ginger's glove? Yes. Doesn't that put her more at risk in case, like, any of this is actually real? Like, why not just go out and buy a glove or something? Good question. I think maybe they thought, what if they can tell that it's not? Hmm. Okay. Maybe. They don't, they don't explain that. Okay. But anyways, this entire thing is very spooky. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It really... Mark kind of says that it didn't get to him, but you can tell that this really affected him. Mm-hmm. So the next morning, Mark goes to the vicarage to call Ginger using the phone, and he is relieved to hear her voice. He was, like, again, clearly terrified and wasn't even admitting it to himself. 
And so she asks about the seance and he kind of says, basically says nothing much happened to her, even though there was all this stuff. But he, I think, doesn't want to freak her out. Mm-hmm. And then he asks her, like, he's kind of asking what's happened with you. And she says, oh, well, I've had all the usual visits. The milkman, there was a man to read the gas meter. There was a woman asking questions about what kind of cosmetics and um, prescription medication I use. Um, there was a guy asking me to sign a petition to stop using atom bombs. You know, the usual things. <laughs> yeah. And then there had been various flat porters that had come into the house. So there was a guy that had come to fix a fuse. Oh, and then she says Dr. Corrigan had paid her a visit. That's a lot of people. Yeah. I think it is. It's people in the last few days. I don't think it was all one day. Okay. So the sur- the surveyor, or whatever you call that, that kind of like um, reminded me of Mrs. Davis. Yeah, yeah, similar to that kind of job. Yeah, like how many people do that kind of job? Like, is it? I guess I can't really ask you if it's if it's significant or not. But <laughs> in my mind right now, it's kind of significant. I'm trying to think if it's mentioned. It it seems like as I kind of said before, it seems like something that like that was what was happening in the day. But yeah. I don't know how often it would have actually happened. Okay. Like if that was you know a weekly occurrence or if it was rare. Mm-hmm. Okay. And the fuses thing was. Anything to do with, like, electricity at this point kind of just <laughs> um, makes me wonder about the whole radio waves or whatever mm-hmm. waves. Yeah. Um, so that's interesting. I think she says, maybe not about the fuse, but the the guy who had checked the gas meter, she kind of goes, like, I, I made him show me his credentials. Like, they were, he, ha- he had them with him. Okay. So maybe that was also for the fuse guy, but I, I'm not sure. <laughs> okay. And last one was Corrigan. Yeah. Dr. Corrigan. Is there a reason why he went? He says that he's just checking up on all the Corrigans. Like, he's like, the Corrigans should stick together. Because her, like, remember oh, her yeah. name was Catherine Corrigan. Oh, yeah, I forgot about that. Okay. Um, and so Mark goes for another walk. He's doing a lot of that because he's got a lot of thinking to do. And he finds himself passing Mr. Venable's house. And so he's kind of like, oh, you know what? I should, I should check up on him. So he um, gate crashes is what they call it. Okay. And first, they just kind of start talking about technical stuff. And so Venables is showing him again all of his the treasures. And Mark is loving it. Apparently, he has like a whole section on mogul, mogul artifacts, which is like Mark's area of study. So they have a great time. Nice. <laughs> and they all start talking about money and all like, because he, the idea that he has, like he has a lot of money and how to get money. And Mr. Venables kind of says that machines are taking over manpower, but they're not taking over man because you need the Superman kind of person who controls the machines. Like, that's still important. Okay. <laughs> or I like, create the Superman. Um, so, like, someone who's able to do all of these things because they kind of, like, have ma- machines at their control. Mm-hmm. And Mark really starts to see Venables as a man who kind of, like, can pull all the strings. And so he kind of, he wants to, like, get his reaction. So he mentions the pale horse and... He acts uneasy on the subject to kind of like, because he's kind of going, if Venables is the man pulling all the strings, like he'd already know that I visited the pale horse or something like that. And he kind of thinks, this is as he's leaving the house, he kind of thinks, is he making it up or did he actually see like an amused, malicious twinkle in Venables' eye? But he's Ooh. not sure if that's just fan- fancy of his. Amused, malicious twinkle. I wish I could see that in people's <laughs> eyes. <laughs> yeah, I don't think I pick up on those things. Yeah. <laughs> So Mark leaves his house and it's kind of dusk. So it's pretty, it's not, it's dark. It's dark enough that he's having trouble seeing. And because of this, he kind of like stump, like goes off the path or the driveway a little bit. 
and runs into a man. What do you think it could be? He he is he still on the Venables property? Yeah, he's like the, he's like a quarter mile long driveway. Bradley, Where are Bradley? you? Is it Bradley? That's what you think. Yeah, either that or Mr. Venables has a twin who can walk. <laughs> <laughs> the man is super awkward. And he kind of is telling Mark, he's like, I really feel like I should justify why I'm here, like what I've been doing, like I, I can really can explain myself. And then he goes, my name's Mr. Osborne. Oh. And so as he's saying that, he, he kind of gets even more flustered and he ends up inviting Mark to, he knows there's a coffee shop coming up a few blocks down the road and he invites him there to like tell, kind of explain himself because he feels so like awkward that he's kind of been caught kind of trespassing is what he's saying. Mm-hmm. Why is he so into the Nables though? Like, how many? It's been weeks, hasn't it? Yeah, oh. I think Mark is thinking the same thing too because he rec- he knows who Mister Osborne is because he's heard his name mentioned, but Mister Osborne oh, doesn't right. know. Okay. So Osborne kind of tries to explain to Mark how he like really recognizes faces, and it's part like it's really part, basically part of his like pride. Like that's what he does, and so he's saying, "I am so sure it was Mister Venables that night." And so he's suggesting to Mark that um, Venables had hired like a lookalike and the lookalike or whoever it was, was the person who actually had polio and was the one who would go to the appointments. Cause he was kind of saying like his appointments are in London, but he lives out here in much deeping. Like the, the doctor wouldn't actually know who he is. He's, so he was saying the reason I was on the property was I was, I wanted to just like stake out and watch him and see if he ever like slipped up and like stood up, even though he says he has polio. Mm, smart. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that that kind of like it makes sense, and I kind of agree with that. Like, I don't know, I did mention my little twin theory, but I guess yeah, like yeah. work as well. <laughs> I think Osborne had also mentioned the twin to Inspector Lejeune, and Lejeune is like, nope, he didn't have brothers. Like, mm-hmm. no, he doesn't have a twin. Okay, we've, we've like checked up on him. Okay, lookalikes work. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> close enough. Then Mark calls Ginger the next day when he's he's kind of moved on to a hotel in um, like a closer by town because he can't stay with his cousin forever. And he notices as he's talking to her that her voice sounds different. And she goes, oh, yeah, I think I, I think I'm catching the flu. Like, I think I'm getting a bit sick. Oh, no. And so, of course, Mark freaks out because this is like the whole thing is that like this idea of quote unquote dying of natural causes or whatever it is, like this whole death ray thing. Mm-hmm. And he makes her see, like, that she has to call a doctor. Like, she has to. She has to get it checked out. And then he has, she has to call him right back. And so two hours later, Ginger rings him back up and kind of says, basically, it's gotten worse. Like, now she has a fever and she's feeling achy all over. And Mark kind of goes, I'm coming down. Like, screw this. I'll be there tomorrow morning or this evening or whatever. Wait, where is he at this point? Just some other village or town? Yeah, He's somewhere near Much Deeping. Like if if Much Deeping's like a small town, maybe he's in like a slightly larger town nearby, but he's not in London. He's like outside of the city. Okay. Like how far away are these places? Do they ever tell you? No, they give no idea. Mm, okay. <laughs> I don't even know if they're real places. Like I Agatha Christie sometimes uses real names, but sometimes she doesn't. I really can't tell if Much Deeping is real or fake. That right? name. <laughs> <laughs> are we insulting all the Brits right now? Oh, no. Very possible. Sorry. I'm very sorry. British people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay, anyway, sorry. So, did she ever actually see the doctor? Like, yes. Yeah, she had the doctor come in to see her, 
And he had he had basically been like, it's just the flu. Like, there's nothing wrong. Okay. Is it Dr. Corrigan or just like another one? Yep. Just her, like her regular physician. Mm-hmm. Her like family doctor, I guess. So after hanging up with Ginger, Mark then immediately calls Inspector Lejeune to be like, she's gotten sick, spend it, send in the police specialist, like get, we need to get this figured out. Like it's, it's happening. And the doctor diagnoses Ginger with a severe case of bronchopneumonia. So this is like now the police doctor and mm-hmm. she's not getting any better. Like she's, she's almost like getting worse. And so Mark is freaking out and he's trying to take his mind off things. And so to do that, he kind of takes Poppy out on another, like on a date, a lunch date almost. And I think it's so he can like pick her brain and ask her more questions, see if she knows anything else about the pale horse. So she's, he's asking, he's going to try to ask Poppy again, even though the first time it didn't really work out. Okay. Yeah. So the way Ginger had gotten information out of Poppy is she had said that Mark's wife, he was trying to get rid of Mark. Mark was trying to get rid of his wife so that he could marry Hermia because Poppy knew who Hermia was. Yeah. Um, and so the, the fact that now Mark is asking Poppy more questions, Poppy thinks that Mark went like went to see the pale horse, which he did. And so she's kind of not concerned. Okay. Mm-hmm. So he tells her, he tells Poppy that the wrong person got sick and is kind of asking her, is there anything I can do? Like he's kind of almost lying, saying like, my wife was supposed to get sick, but then this girl Ginger did and that's not what I wanted to happen. And she kind of throws out this random name that we haven't heard before. She says, oh, well, you could talk to Eileen Brandon. She might know something. Eileen Brandon. Yeah, so it's this new name. And so Mark's kind of going, where did this come from? And then when he asks Poppy who that is, she replies that she's a woman that worked for the CRC, which she goes, I don't know, customer research something. I'm not sure what it is. But um, that she'd quit her job because she'd got an idea about something. She'd gotten a little worried about the company and so it quit. So Eileen Brandon is also another one of those survey people. Yes. yes. And she got an idea, like perhaps a technological idea involving waves. Unclear. <laughs> but Mark's making a mental note of like, I need to, I need to interview this Eileen Brandon woman. Yeah, for sure. Is that all he gets from Poppy? That's all you can get out of Poppy. She's got, she doesn't really know anything. She's just, again, it's just overheard these things. So that's all she can give. Okay. So then the next morning he tries to call Lejeune, but there's no answer. So he calls up Dr. Corrigan and basically finds out that Ginger has gotten even worse. And Mark pitches Osborne's idea. So whatever Osborne had told, like Osborne had told Mark the other day uh, about Venables. And I think Corrigan's like, I mean, it's possible. It's definitely something we should look into. That's all, that's all he says. Yeah. Is it? Does he say it like kind of like, oh yeah, we'll do it, like waving it off, or is it more like we will? I think between the two of those, like okay. he's not really police, so I don't think he's waving it off. He's kind of going like, oh okay, like that's interesting, but he doesn't sound like incredibly invested. Like yes, that must be the answer. I always forget that he's not police. Okay. <laughs> he's like he's a police surgeon, so like you know he's involved, but he's not technically a detective. Mm-hmm. So then he hangs up with Corrigan and kind of immediately the telephone starts ringing and he doesn't want to answer it, but he's like, what if it's the hospital calling about Ginger? I have to answer it. So he picks it up and it ends up being Mrs. Oliver, Ariadne Oliver. And she's remembered something and he's kind of like, who cares? Like, stop telling me. Like, I need to go. I have things to do. And she's like, no, 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 listen, I have this new maid who's come in because my, my maid had to like go on holiday or something. Her name is Edith Binns. And she used to work for your godmother, Lady Hesketh Dubois. And she remembers that her mistress, when her mistress was dying or had that like illness, um, her hair was falling out. 
And then she goes, don't you think it's interesting that Hesketh Dubois, Delafontaine, and Tuckerton all had their hair falling out? And so Mark basically slams down the receiver at this point to Collagen, and he asks, is Ginger's hair falling out? To which the answer is yes. And so Mark at this point has a pretty good idea of what, how, like why Ginger's dying. Or like it's really sick. Already? <laughs> okay. Yeah. So do you want to take any guesses on anything? This has been a, you know, there's a lot to unpack, but. Yeah. Um, well, with the hair falling out, I think it's either something to do like with the gas lines that the guy did. Like, mm, what was yeah. that? Yeah, the person who came over to check with the meters or the something. Gas, the gas meter, yeah. yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Or she's been eating something. Like, I don't think it's the waves, obviously. <laughs> yeah. But I'm not sure who it would be. I almost, like, I have a feeling that Corrigan's the bad guy in all this. Mm-hmm. Especially because he's in a position of power or and trust. Um, yeah. So that he could kind of give any sort of med- medication or... Um, food to any of these sick people um and his name was on the list yeah that's true i keep forgetting about that but that's also um gingers right yes are they like long lost siblings or like father daughter or something like that oh no (laughs) is it one of those twists they do Um, they do kind of make it sound like corrigan's a pretty common name so it is possible neither of them are involved but in this story kind of feels like everyone is yeah that's true yeah, I, I don't know. I think it's, I feel like the gas meter is like the most rational explanation. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But that's me saying this before you tell me something that will probably probably make way more sense. So, <laughs> not okay. sure. Yeah, it is. So it's, it's, it's here. So he goes to the hospital and they think they've made it in time to treat thallium poisoning, which I did not expect you to guess because I have no idea what that is. But what? That. <laughs> It's apparently a poison that used to be used. Um, it's used for treating certain things, but they a very common side effect of it is that your hair falls out. And so that's how Mark kind of came to realize it. I've never heard of it before. I never would have guessed it, but that's that's what they realized. That it's true. That's what Ginger has like gotten into her system in some way. And so she's that's what the sickness is from. And they kind of revert back to this case that had happened in the states where it was like a thallium manufacturing plant or something like that and all of the workers were just dying of quote-unquote natural causes and they list off all of the the different illnesses and bronchopneumonia what ginger was diagnosed with is one of those things that these people suffered from and so are all the other natural causes of death that those other people on the list had died from Hmm. so they know for sure that it's this kind of poisoning yes but we just don't know where it came from So then all that, they kind of go like all that hooey and all the trances, the pale horse is just poisoning. It's So what you were saying, yeah, it's not, there's nothing to do. It's, that's all just like a, a, a smokescreen. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they, this is Lejeune and Mark talking. They kind of agree that the common factor between all of this is a pleasant, harmless seeming woman who calls at the house with a questionnaire for the CRC or the Customer Research Council is the name of this company. They had found out that's who Mrs. Davis had worked for, was that company. Mm-hmm. And so they're going to speak to Eileen Brandon. Like, this woman's alive and healthy. We need to figure out what's up there. So she says that she had wanted she had wanted to leave the company because she had a feeling that something was going on. But she kind of is telling them, like, I can't, like, I couldn't have gone to the police. It wasn't something like that. It was just this 
bad feeling. I, I have two kids at home. I didn't want to be a part of anything bad. And the reason she had felt that way is because she had talked to Mrs. Davis, the, the woman who had died at the beginning of the story. And Miss, Mrs. Davis wasn't happy either because she had overheard something. And Eileen Brandon isn't sure what, but she, she had overheard something. And then she'd also seen a man coming out of a house who shouldn't have been in that house carrying a bag of tools. Mrs. Davis had mentioned a woman who ran a pub called the Pale Horse. So this is kind of all what Eileen Brandon is able to say. And she's like, that's why I quit. I was getting out of that racket. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> that kind of ties things together, or at least mm-hmm. like makes, makes it like certain. Yeah. What kind of what we were suspecting. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I, this, I know this has been a little weird of a story, but do you have any final last minute theories on the whole breakdown of what's going on? Okay. Or anything you want to kind of change on what you've seen, said before. Okay, so I'm like, I'm just trying to think of what a survey person could actually do while they're at the house. Like, they can collect information, mm-hmm. uh-huh. but it's not like they can actually act right there and then. Well, so they asked they ask Eileen Brandon, like, what did you do? And she was like, I just, like, we'd go through all of these questions, and that's that's it. They're like, did you give them samples? She's like, no. Like, just fill the forms. Hmm. Yeah, okay. <laughs> so, because I still think that... When Ginger was saying, oh, like, the milkman came, the whatever came, all these people came. Like, I think that's mm-hmm. the clue there. Ooh, milkman. Mm-hmm. Everybody just has to drink milk, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Not ad- People aren't lactose intolerant or sensitive. Like <laughs> <laughs> what's, what's the debate we've been having is only white people drink milk? For sure. I, I learned the other day that... And Eric Wong. Oh, yeah. Oh, disgusting. <laughs> but <laughs> I learned the other day, like, I asked my dad, hey does cheese exist in Chinese cuisine? Yeah. Because, like, I was trying to think back to all the dishes, and it was like, like no, Chinese people just don't eat cheese. Nothing. Apparently there's, like, one region that does. Interesting. But, like, not in any dish. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> so lactose intolerance makes sense. It, it does, yeah. <laughs> Sorry, anyways, back, back to the topic. Um, <laughs> so I think you said Venables was very rich, right? Yeah. Almost, like, flaunts his money. Okay. So... Theory time. Venables yes. is the mastermind. Yeah. He has Bradley working for him and has some sort of relationship with him that we will find out because I never, I can never predict these relationships. Fair. <laughs> I still think that like, even though the pale horse seems super fishy and stuff, I don't know if that's like, I don't, I don't think they are. I feel like this, like it's like a red herring kind mm-hmm. of thing where they're just kind of like fakes. Like they say they're witches yeah. and like they do all these like seance type events, but in reality it's they're like covering up for somebody else yeah yeah yeah. and it's all just kind of like to maintain a reputation maybe in the in the town mm-hmm. not um in terms of what are their names bella sybil and thurza thurza yeah um i don't know when you first like mentioned them i feel like i thought that they would be in the list of names like their last names would be like parkinson mm-hmm. or or yeah. shaw or something but yeah that never really came up again so no, no, no. maybe not <laughs> okay yeah I still think the Nables is the person who is in charge of everything he has some sort of he's, twin he's or somehow mm-hmm. yeah he has some sort of twin or doppelganger or is able okay. to implant false memories <laughs> yeah. especially with the Osborne case <laughs> uh, um, 
is somebody part of like a pharmaceutical company or something and they're just like handing out these pills or dissolving medicine in quotation marks everybody they want to kill i don't know it's the 60s right that that can be possible Possible. anything's possible yeah is everybody just on drugs is that the answer (laughs) (laughs) wow what an ending to the story oh they're still on drugs (laughs) gotcha (laughs) okay Uh, i'm not sure yes please (laughs) So what you're kind of saying is like, is someone a part of a pharmaceutical company? Well, someone was owned a chemist shop. Oh, shoot. <gasps> no. <laughs> Mr. Yes. So Lejeune is kind of describing, Inspector Lejeune is kind of describing this to Mark, how he was kind of suspicious of Osborne immediately. This guy who had said, yeah, I could see them distinctly through the fog walking down the street and Lejeune was kind of like that seems impossible and then the other thing that kind of tripped him off to um, to Osborne was the fact that he stayed so completely steady with Venables being the culprit like it would have been so easy um, to think that it was Venables and then when he was told oh no Venables is a cripple it can't possibly have been him to back off and been like oh yeah I guess you're right but the fact that he was so stubborn about it made Lejeune look into him further and what they found out was that Osborne was kind of a ringleader of this whole show. And he would, he had hired, I think, Bradley and the Pale Horse. None of them knew each other or were connected. And that was part of the, the kind of geniusness about Mr. Osborne is that he kept everything separate so that no one could kind of like tip anyone off. And he owned the customer research company. What? And what... <laughs> Yeah, right? So what he would do is he got these women, they were just regular, nothing going on there, to fill out these questionnaires that were a little fishy in some sense. Like, basically, it was finding out what products are in the home. And then he would go in, kind of like what you're saying, dressed as the gas man to check the, the meter or a plumber to fix your sink or just anything. He would have the proper credentials or he would have fake, like, fake proper credentials. And while he was fixing something, he would swap out your shampoo or your medicine or something like that. He would swap out something that you had filled out on your questionnaire you had mm. with thallium poisoning in it. What was the goal of all this? Well, so he, it was this betting game, right? So as soon as that Bradley would bet you 5,000 pounds that that person would die before this given time. And if they did die, you'd pay up the money. Oh. And so it was, all, it was all about making money and this idea of power and kind of controlling people's lives. So, huh. Okay. Please ask me any questions because I might have <laughs> left bits of it. <laughs> I'm trying to, yeah, I'm just trying to like, I guess, compose myself. Like, yeah, it's crazy. So the 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 pale horse, like the the three witches, totally a smokescreen. What Lejeune kind of describes is that he bets that they believe that they're at, they what they were doing. He thinks either some of them, maybe not all three of them, but some of them probably believe that what they're doing was actually killing the people because Osborne wouldn't have told them what he was doing. Yeah, but would. Would they have been okay with it as well? Like, why were they... Seemingly, yes. Like, they knew people were dying. That was the whole thing. Yeah. So you said that Bradley didn't know anybody at the Pale Horse either? 
he knew that they existed. Like he knew that that's what would happen because he would then send the client, like you would make the bet. And then a few days later, you'd go and visit the male horse. Mm. So I think he knew what they were doing, but he didn't know what Mr. Osborne was doing. Okay. Huh. Weird. I guess. Yeah. So, so he killed the Reverend because he had a list of names because um, Mrs. Davis mm-hmm. confessed. Well, it seems like Mrs. Davis knew too much and he probably killed her. Killed her. But then when she was talking to the Reverend, Reverend yeah. Gorman, yeah. like, why did he kill him? Did he kill him? He he did. You're, yes. Like, that was this whole thing about he made up this, he made up this story of seeing Mr. Venables. And yeah. Lejeune kind of guesses that what happened was Mr. Osborne had seen Venables sitting in a car on the street somewhere. And he has such a prominent face that he remembered that, like, he remembered the face, but didn't realize he was crippled because he was sitting down in a car. It so wouldn't have known he had a wheelchair. And so we made up this story about this man because it was kind of with the beaked nose and the thin face, like it kind of looked, it fit the part of a criminal's face. Mm-hmm. And he knew that Father Gorman had been visiting Mrs. Davis and he knew that Mrs. Davis knew too much. And so he might not have been sure what Father Gorman knew, but he had to kill him anyways. Mm, okay. Wow. At all of this, just for money. Yeah. And <laughs> he, just insane. So this was, yeah, it's kind of a, a different story than what her usual mystery stories were, Agatha Christie. It was it was very cool. I guess I have yeah. I have a few more questions, but if we're going over time, then I can ask you them later. No, 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 ask them. I'm sure everyone wants to know them. <laughs> okay. Um, so why was Polly so afraid of the pale horse? Who did she have killed? Poppy. I don't think she had anyone killed. I think she just was around people that talked about it. Like, it seemed oh. to be this. I guess the police weren't aware of it yet, but it seemed to be this thing that a good number of people in London knew of. And we have that list of names. And what it seems like is that these were all people that Mrs. Davis had gone to see. And then she kind of kind of started to wonder what was happening because she realized that all these people that she would go talk to and like survey would die. But that was just one person. So there was probably lots more people because there were lots more women doing these surveys. So lots yeah. more people that could have been dying. Wow, what a mastermind. Yeah. So we don't even know the, the scope of all of this, right? Mm-hmm. That's scary. <laughs> but okay. I guess that, yeah, that makes sense. It all makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, overall, uh, how do you feel about the story? How do you feel about uh, being a guest on the podcast? Oh, I love being a guest. Thank you for having me. Yeah, and this is great. The story was really fun. I can't believe... Like, now looking back on it, oh, it was obvious, wasn't it? <laughs> is this that's, how you always feel? I feel like that's how I feel. Oh, man. Yes. It's like, oh, of course. Of course, it all adds up. Everything makes sense when it's that person. The person I thought yeah. didn't make any sense. <laughs> like, you had to factor in a doppelganger and my thing. Like, Well, yeah, that was the whole thing. It was all this, like, smokescreen that Mr. Osborne was creating. Like, he's the one that suggested the doppelganger yeah oh and we just trusted him we just trusted him damn (laughs) (laughs) oh to also ginger lives ginger's okay her hair is kind of falling out but it will grow back because she's young you know i kind of hope that ginger and mark easterbrook get together i feel like they'd make a couple it seems like from the way the book is going that that they are they are he i think he proposes in not that many words but you get that idea Oh, that happened quickly. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, it's kind of weird. <laughs> but you know, if you pretend to be someone's wife, that's just the way things move. Yeah. Wife first and then get married second. Yeah. I think we should do a call out to all the graduates of 2020 that are graduating this year. Congratulations. That's uh, oh. me and Shelly included. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, congrats, Kate. And I'm glad you got to watch the yeah. <laughs> And thank you to everyone listening at home. I hope you had a good time. I hope you guessed parts of what was going on during the story. If you haven't already, you can follow me on Instagram at Tuesday Night Mystery Club and listen to this podcast wherever you get podcasts. Thank you. Thank you.